Ready graphics? Ready theme? We love your podcast, by the way, you know, because it's not just a podcast that recaps episodes, but it's also a podcast that places the show in in the culture and in the in the history. Uh, so, you know, that makes it unique in, in a lot of ways. And we really enjoy it. Hi, this is Lauren Milberger. And this is Jesse Mullins. And welcome to a very special interview episode of the podcast, one that has been in the works for almost a year now. Guys, we we wanted this longer than you, believe it or not, and we knew you wanted it, and it finally happened. We finally sat down virtually and in person with Diane English, the real Murphy Brown, in the writer's room, funny enough, at Kaufman Astoria Studios with Jesse by Skype. Yeah! And we had an amazing time. It's This is a two-part interview. Please remember to listen to the second part. As if we could talk to Diane in only one episode worth. Yes. Seriously. She was so lovely and so generous, and we got to hear really wonderful stories that I think you've never heard before. It was really lovely, and thank you, Diane, for giving us your time, and I think that all the listeners are really going to love the interview. Yeah, we're so excited. It was was such a lovely experience, and we both feel so fortunate, and we're sure you will, too. Um, So please enjoy our interview with Diane English. Will the mystery guests please sign in? Hello, I'm Diane English, and I am the executive producer and creator of Murphy Brown. Hi, welcome. Hi. <laughs> this uh, first. Oh. <laughs> oh no, it's just this is obviously very exciting for us to actually get. We've spoken to you previously, but to actually get to talk to you in this uh, this medium is really exciting. And I know that our listeners got very excited when they found out who we were going to be talking to today. I hope I'm not boring. <laughs> no way. No way. You are at Real Murphy Brown. Yeah. There's no way. We seriously doubt that. We love your podcast, by the way. You know, because it's Thank not just you. a podcast that recaps episodes, but it's also a podcast that places the show in in the culture and in the mm-hmm. in the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that makes it unique in, in a lot of ways. And we really enjoy it. Thank you. That's very flattering. It's something that I know is the reason we wanted to make this, right, Lauren? Is for us, it really informed the our culture, and it was so much more than just a series of antics. And that's why we wanted... I, I mean, our original goal was we just wanted it more on DVD, and then we got <laughs> even more than we ever thought we could. Yeah, we really wanted to just show how the show was still relevant, even though we knew that mm-hmm. it was the music yeah. rights. We thought that maybe mm-hmm. if we got the fandom going, if we showed people that it was still something that would resonate with people, that maybe some things might change. Yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, you know, DVDs don't have a big, it's not a big business anymore. No, it's not. Yeah, no. so. And I think when we say DVD, we mean streaming, really. Yeah, well, that would be yeah. that yeah. would be great. That would be great. I know AT&T, which now uh, owns Warner Brothers and all of its content, mm-hmm. is starting a streaming service in about a year. Oh, yes, okay. I, I saw that. Mm-hmm. But would that really, would that, you think that would really affect anything because of the music or, or not? It's the phone company. They have pretty deep pockets. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if anybody can afford that, that's good to know. <laughs> that was always my so, greatest fear was that I would grow up work for the phone company, and now I am. <laughs> they found you. 
Uh, I, I mean, that's well, not necessarily with the first question that we wanted to talk about. But since we're we're in that that subject, that's mm-hmm. definitely something that when we ask people for questions, that was their big question. And yeah. I know there's been a lot of different information, but for people who are asking, can you explain to our listeners exactly what the issue is and uh, why it's not streaming? Yeah, um, the the. The original series used uh, one and sometimes two pieces of original music, either Atlantic Mm -hmm. or Motown, Um, and we cut our opening sequence to that music pretty specifically, so we really can't replace it. So what that means is that um, a streaming service would have to repurchase the music rights for each one of those 247 episodes. In back in the day, you would buy the rights for broadcast, um, mm-hmm. and there wasn't any streaming, and there wasn't any premium cable to speak of in any of those other platforms. So uh, now, when you buy a piece of music, you it, it's easily five figures and often six figures for one song because you're buying it for every possible platform, even things that haven't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. So um, so somebody would have to foot the bill for that. And, um, you know, it might be worth it for a new streaming service um, to, to do that, especially since they own the content. So, uh, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's interesting to consider the, the concept of buying the rights to a song in perpetuity versus just when it airs. That, that implication of, of ownership to, uh, and the ability to play a song and someone's music is, is a much far, a further reaching type of, of property ownership at this point. Yeah, it's, you know, the technology has changed so fast. So, you know, like I said now, for instance, we bought, uh, for our first episode this season, we bought uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that cost us an arm and a leg. But it was our first one, and we bought it for everything. Um, so, you know, even if there's a chip in your brain now that's going to play music and, and television <laughs> shows, we're covered for that. <laughs> Which, hey, who knows? It's a, we're living in a sci-fi kind of world, and I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> so now going, we'll see what happens. Going, going through the revival, did you know that you weren't going to be using any other songs going forward, and this was a way to sort of transition by having a song in the pilot, or was it just that particular song that you really wanted to use? Uh, That was um, the plan. Um, Warner Brothers and I discussed, you know, the fact that it was it was kind of a a trademark of ours to play a song at the beginning of every episode. Mm -hmm. We didn't do a theme, you know, and that was I think we were one of the first people to do that. Um, But we didn't want to get stuck in the same situation. So um, plus, you know, the, the purchase of that those rights now is is really incredibly expensive so the first one just to market Mm -hmm. and also the song was so perfect for that opening montage and also it gives you guys more time for dialogue yes shortness of the episode yeah because we only have 21 minutes and 15 seconds now yeah as opposed to 24 minutes and that makes a huge difference yeah we talk about that a lot on the show yeah it does Mm -hmm. yeah it's not good it's it's (laughs) it's like shooting yourself in the foot if you're a broadcast network because for them, mm. it's like the last days of disco, you know. <laughs> they really have yeah. to figure out their a new business model. Yeah. Um, and shoving more commercials into a show is really, you know, it, driving more people away. Because people are used to watching television now without commercials. Mm-hmm. They're watching cable. Mm-hmm. They're watching things streaming. You know, they're, they DVR it and they man- manage to you know, fast forward through things. So um, Mm -hmm. it does not make a lot of sense to just shove more commercials. And I know NBC is experimenting with 
a few less commercials, just charging more for them. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, it'll be interesting at the end of the season to see how that pans out for them. Oh, yeah, I noticed that Will and Grace was 22 minutes. Not that that's a huge difference. Yeah, they got extra more, 45 yeah. seconds. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in the editing room right now on our final episode, and there's a whole bunch of things that are going to have to hit the cutting room oh. floor because oh. if I had that 45 seconds, I wouldn't have to do that. Have you, have you thought of putting anything on the website, or is that something that yeah. they're interested in? Yeah, uh, CBS Interactive does do that. We feed them things that we've had to cut that we really love, um, and they put it up on their their interactive website. Oh, they've been nice. they've been collecting them. Oh, so, collecting them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and okay. then they'll they'll do something with them. Um, a bunch of them, though, I don't want them to use because I would like to recycle them into a second season. <laughs> Good. It's the good. joke bank. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I've i mentioned on the show, I don't know how many you have listened to, but um, that I have a collection of table drafts because I love the fact that there's extra information in them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll see jokes that later on will show up in other episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we used to have a bank. We literally had a jar. Oh, really? And we'd cut it out of the script oh. and put it in the bank. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So. Oh, we, we love that. We love a visual like that. We're going to have to <laughs> have to remember that for... For our future jokes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, usually we like to start with people's origin stories. So what is your origin story? I was born. <laughs> start there. <laughs> um, I was born in Buffalo, New York, Great Lakes City. Um, and uh, I, I uh, just had this uh, interest in writing from a very early age. I remember the first real praise I got from a teacher was an essay that I wrote um, when I was in second grade, and I thought, oh, that feels good, mm-hmm. you know, to be pat on the head like that. And uh, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I spent a lot of time alone in my room. I was a shy kid, and I would write parodies of, you know, novels like House of the Seven Cables and, um, and then pass them around uh, in school. And um, I just loved comedy, too. So uh, eventually, um, when I went to college, I, I was um, majoring in education, secondary education, via an English teacher. Um, but my, my heart was really in playwriting, and so I was, I was uh, um, early on part of the theater group at Buffalo State. And there was a fabulous man named Warren Enters, who was a very celebrated Broadway director and a co-founder of the Cherry Lane Theater, and he wanted to teach for a semester. And he wound up at my school, of all places. And um, we all fell in love with him, and he fell in love with us, and he stayed for five or six years, I think. And he was a great mentor to me. He really encouraged me to um, take my writing more seriously and move to New York. Uh, And I taught one year. Uh, saved up my money and then moved, and um, then I I wound up. Uh, my first job was in public television at WNET 13, writing copy. Um, but then I moved into theater in America, where uh, I met people like Bo Goldman, uh, who were writing plays and and they were being uh, adapted for television. Uh, I I really felt like that was the beginning for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I, I got into uh, the television laboratory, and that was a wonderful experimental place um, where they were making 
um, videos, guerrilla television, essentially, uh, mm-hmm. experimenting with with video with uh, small cameras and and kind of changing what you can do in television. And they got a grant to um, make the first movie for television for PBS, and it was called The Lathe of Heaven. It was an adaptation of a Ursula Le Guin mm-hmm. novel. They hired a fancy screenwriter from Los Angeles, and uh, they were weeks away from shooting and didn't have a script they liked. So they asked me to go put some notes into it, and I took it home and I rewrote it. (laughs) (laughs) It was easier than putting notes in a margin. (laughs) And uh, that's the script they wound up shooting, and I shared credit with that guy and uh, according to the Writers Guild, uh, we got a Writers Guild nomination for it, and that was how I got my first agent, and uh, I was off and running. It's a lot of gumption. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that, that's that's all the stories that I hear that how you do it is you just take an opportunity and go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just sitting there, you know, yeah. and uh, what was there to lose at that point? You know, you're young and stupid, and you don't really know you're going to oh. offend somebody. But Thank goodness. <laughs> it's fu- it's good to be young and stupid. Uh, yeah, it is, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I moved to New York. I didn't know anybody, really. And, and just uh, my brother, who's six years younger than me, and I got a U-Haul, uh, and we drove together to New York to move me into a studio apartment. And... Um, when the U-Haul, when I when I pulled it up to the house, it, it's like all the neighbors came out looking at it because nobody had ever moved <laughs> out of that neighborhood. It was an old neighborhood, you know, families inherited houses and their kids inherited the houses, and it was like a spaceship mm-hmm. had landed. And, uh, you know, and we, we uh, took a weekend and we moved me to New York, and um, I never really looked back. Mm-hmm. I definitely know that feeling as a, a Great Lakes kid who moved to New York. I think I had one friend out here. And then all of that, including Lauren, all the friends I've made now are all from separate things. There's something great about New York that it encourages you to be have a lot of gumption and be stupid, and you succeed for it. It's, it's great. It's, it's um, you know, I think everybody should have one year here, sort of, mm-hmm. you know? It's, yeah. uh, it's a very special, interesting place. It can beat the hell out of you too, you know. Um, but uh, I'm very excited to be back here and making the show here too. Just going back to a little bit of what you were talking about before uh, with your mentor, I've read a lot of you speaking of being taught indirect dialogue and how that was mm-hmm. very um, uh, mm-hmm. important to mm-hmm. your development as a writer. Can you talk to our viewers of what indirect dialogue is and how it's helped you? Well, it's um, it's a way of telling, it's a way of expressing a scene um, <clears throat> without really being on the nose. So, for instance, uh, I'm going to try to think of an example. If there's a couple in a grocery store and they're having an argument, maybe their relationship is breaking up, mm-hmm. but they're not really talking about that. They're talking about how to choose a cantaloupe. And they <laughs> both have different ways of doing it. I'm just making this up as I go. But that's that you can tell everything about that marriage mm-hmm. by by listening to them argue about how to how to choose this cantaloupe. Um, and that's really the essence of indirect dialogue and mm-hmm. I, I you know I I really enjoy writing that way. Um, hard to do in 21 minutes. You sort of have to get to it, you mm-hmm. know. 
Uh, yeah. But um, but every now and then you'll see it pop up in our show. When you say that uh, when you were younger, and I mean, I know Lauren and I both have spoken about being the shy kids who found our way through art, found our voices. When you said you were the shy kid writing and you were drawn to comedy, what, what drew you to dr- writing comedy in particular? Were there particular influences or or uh, writers in particular? Yeah, you know, um, I lived in a two-family house. My grandparents lived in the flat below, and my uh, family lived above, and my grandfather was a hilarious man. And we loved having these sort of joke-offs, you know, and and (laughs) repeating jokes to each other. We used to watch uh, your show of shows together, which was a huge influence, (laughs) and Ernie Kovacs, and... um, we watched um, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson together, Burns and Allen, uh, and we liked to repeat the bits. Um, and then I also had an uncle who's my mother's brother who was also, like his dad, very funny. And I, I really enjoyed spending time with them. They were, they were important male figures in my life because my dad was a bit of a problem. And, uh, you know... I mean, the definition of a comedy writer is somebody who had a difficult childhood. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, rarely would you find somebody uh, who who does what we do and uh, where it was smooth sailing. Uh, so, you know, I think I think that's where I got it from. You know, I just really like to laugh. I've written my share of dramas, but it's not nearly as satisfying, and it's it's mm-hmm. harder to 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 make people laugh for the right mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of, uh, we've talked about on the show before that comedy tends to be sort of the, I hate this term, but the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> but it is actually yes. the hardest to do, but it yeah. looks so effortlessly, <laughs> effortless that people take it for granted, I think. It takes a lot of dramatic intent to make comedy work. The true That true belief in the stakes of what is happening is what is funny, as opposed to just being, the, going for the funny first never works. Finding that truth and the depth of that is is what's really hard about good comedy, and one of the things I know that we love about the show. I was uh, I was just listening to uh, Dak Shepard's podcast, and he was interviewing Conan O'Brien, and they had a conversation about how few comedy writers were the class clowns. Oh, yeah. and how <laughs> often people ask that, and that's not usually what happens. It's usually the shyer kid sitting in the back. It's the Eugene Levy quote from. Uh, waiting for Guffman, was uh, I'm not, I wasn't the class clown. I sat behind him and I took notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true, you know. And we do try to go for the truth first. I mean, if you read our outlines, mm-hmm. they read like dramas, you know, and it mm-hmm. scares the network. It's like, where, 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 where are the jokes? This is a comedy. But we we do try to get the story right and the motivations right and the the truth of it right. You know, mm-hmm. that's the big infrastructure the underpinning of of every episode and then when you have 10 people around a table they're all geniuses these guys and women um that then then the 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 best funny stuff comes out of situations and behaviors and especially when the cast is all you know firing on all cylinders together that's where our best stuff comes from did you feel like you were entering a boys club as a female comedy writer no I've never felt that in any aspect of of what I do. I don't know why. It's not like it isn't, you know. But um, <laughs> but I've I've actually never felt that, and I've never felt um, any kind of um, prejudice uh, because I'm a female uh, mm-hmm. as a showrunner, uh, a writer, a producer, 
a director even. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've never felt it. That's good. I know you've referred to yourself as a unicorn yeah. in this business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I turned 70 this year. So, and I'm, you know, I'm executive producing a major network television series. Yeah. Who knew, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, I may not be the only one, but I'm certainly one of maybe two. <laughs> yeah. So, and how about Candace? I mean, she just got a Golden Globe nomination today. This mm-hmm. morning. At her age to do this, you know, uh, is, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Because we both uh, run the social media for the podcast, we see a lot of feedback, and people are so happy to see Candace in, in the role. Not just because they remember her from their childhood, because to see a strong older woman yeah. really means a lot to them. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's a that's a great thing for younger people to see too. Mm-hmm. And we've we got so much of that when we started up. You know, people, uh, young women and men who watch the show with their moms. Um, mm-hmm. who were very influenced by it. Uh, Marissa Mayer, who ran Yahoo, yeah. uh, was mm-hmm. interviewed by Chloe Mall, Candace's daughter, for Vogue. And she said, you may not know this, but I watched your mom's show growing up, and it's what encouraged me and made me feel that I could run a company to see a woman doing what she was oh. doing. I mean, it w- we get this all the time. It's the most satisfying thing. No, oh, it must be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's always amazed to see how the cross-section exactly is. You have people who would watch the show and want to be writers or actors or people who watch the show and want to be lawyers or politicians, and everyone took something different out of it, but it was the fact that it was a strong woman that meant something to them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so that's that's satisfying. That's worth it. So since we are talking about Murphy... Um, and mm. we've talked about the start of the show from different points of view, from what we've heard, from Grant talking about it, uh, from Joe, from Norm. We would love to hear your point of view of the kernel of the idea and so forth. Um, how I got the idea? Uh, is that? Yeah. Well, yeah. What, well, what's the first memory for you when you think of how this started? Oh, gosh. Um, I remember... Um, sitting in my home office <clears throat> with a very um, antiquated now computer, word <laughs> processor they called them, oh, uh, yes. and, and trying to finish the script before the writer's strike. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I have a very clear memory of that room, the chair, the computer. I even, as I typed the last lines, I had a black Russian next to me. It was like six o'clock, and I—that was my drink at the time. Too much for me now, but um, uh, and I couldn't come up with a title. I just was terrible at titles, and I had to hand it in. And I just typed the name of the character at the top of mm. the page, mm. and it stuck. But that's my first memory—is just sitting there um, in a chair. Um, you know, writing. I had a long form yellow pad, and I was writing character names, possible character names, and how they would relate to each other. I still have these pages. Oh, that's great. Um, just you know, how would Murphy relate to Miles, and what did Miles think of Corky, and where was Jim's place in this, and all of that. You know, it was almost like a Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. You know, that I was making for myself before I started writing the script, and. Um, yeah, those are early memories. Um, and then, you know, it just, uh, it was, who knew 
you know, you just do your best and you yeah. turn it in and you have no clue that it's going to turn into what it turned into. And how close to the writer's strike did you hand in that draft? It was uh, handed in on a Friday night. No, sorry. I finished my draft on a Friday night. I brought in a couple of people like Tom Palmer and Corby, mm-hmm. Danny Jacobson, to come to the house and, and help me punch it up over the weekend. And I got it in on Sunday night and on Monday morning, the strike started. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that was, a, as it turns out, a good thing because um, they had to make a decision at the network about whether they were going to shoot this pilot or not or wait until the strike was over. And they felt mm-hmm. like uh, they didn't really have much else to shoot. So um, so we went forward with it. We cast it. It, it. But it was scary because I knew I couldn't touch it. You know, yeah. I mean, there's always things mm-hmm. you hear at a table reading that you want to change and there's stuff that you want to rewrite. And, and we were going forward with this and, and we couldn't do anything except cut for time. You could not write any new dialogue. Yeah. And of course, I write very long, so we did a lot of cutting. But the network couldn't give any any writing notes. Oh yeah, um, they could oh. only give performance notes. And with this cast, you know, you could give them anything, and they would make it, you know, sound fabulous. Uh, so we shot it just as it had come out of my computer, except a little shorter, and um, and that's that's what aired. It's amazing. So, yeah. And won the Emmy. Yeah. And won an Emmy, yeah, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. And it, yeah. and it taught us a lesson, too. It's like trust your first instincts. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a tendency because you see show your show being rehearsed day after day after day that you start to think, well, that's not funny anymore. And, oh, but yeah. but you've got to trust your first instinct. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that was a lesson learned because I think I would have changed a lot just because I could. <laughs> That's so interesting. Well, yeah, and I think there is something that's something that's very Murphy Brown. It's just uh, trust instinct, first thing, first thought, best thought. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, our our scripts do get better every day. Um, I know the cast is always really eager to get their hands on the next draft the mm-hmm. next morning because they'll see new jokes in there. Um, our Our scripts rarely go backwards. Um, which okay. is not often the case with other shows, mm-hmm. um, because we do so much work up front. We really put in the time up front, and we treat it as if we were all playwrights, you know. Yeah. And um, uh, we started this season in Burbank for two months, pitching stories in real detail, um, the lines of dialogue, jokes, stuff, jokes that made it into the show that we thought of in May that are going to air, you know, next mm-hmm. week. Um, it's just, uh, it was a, it was a great group and, and everybody's willing to do that kind of, you know, it's like digging a ditch, you know, it's, 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 um, nothing is on the fly. There's many, many outlines and notes and so on before we actually Mm -hmm. write a draft. So we've uh, talked to Grant recently about his audition story, Uh which is one of our favorite audition stories because it's so specific and unique. Can you talk about it from your point of view? Yeah, um, we uh, knew how important that role was. They're all important, but, you know, we needed somebody who was a fresh face. We needed somebody new, and, 
And um, I had something really specific in mind, and and casting kept sending us these sort of stereotypical nerds, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm. one after the other after the other, too broad, too obvious, too, um, and uh, and we were really down to the wire, and we were really days away from having to start rehearsal, and um, Grant, um, I think Barnett had asked many times for Grant. He had seen him or heard about him. He was an understudy in Torch Song and, and uh, thought he was the right type, but somehow his tape never got to us. Um, mm. And we uh, actually were about to go with someone else uh, who's wonderful. He's a wonderful actor, Greg German, um, who went on to Ally McBeal fame and very quirky and so on, but he wasn't the guy I wrote. And uh, we were so up against it that I was seriously considering rewriting the part for him. Oh. But um, I, I just woke up the next day and it was like, I can't do this. This is not right. There's got to be somebody out there. Let's just take a couple more days. And we were all sitting in our production office figuring out what we were going to do next. And my memory of it is that his tape was playing in the background. There was a bunch of people on this tape. We put the, deep, the, the, the cassette in, and we were having a conversation, not really paying a lot of attention, but just sort of mm -hmm. fast, randomly fast-forwarding. And I think we all turned to the screen at the same time and saw him there, turned up <laughs> the volume, and there he was. And Barnett goes, that's the guy I've been asking for. <laughs> So we quickly flew him out. Um, I know Grant was not planning to get this part, uh, but he thought, oh, free trip, you know, uh, nice plane ride. I'll see my, uh, my friend. I'll, I'll crash with my friend. He walked in and he read for us, and he was in a black T-shirt, black jeans, and motorcycle boots. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the guy. He just hit every note, and he was so cute. Um, and likable and uh, smart, and we said, okay, we gotta we gotta get him now to the networks. We called the network. We said we got we think we got the guy. So uh, we had to dress him because um, he didn't bring anything with him. So we yeah. had we got him the blazer, we got him the gray pants, we got him a pair of fake glasses, <laughs> and uh, and he went in and he, uh, in my opinion, nailed it. But again, they had in their mind that sort of stereotypical nerd guy, and uh, Grant stepped out, and we said, "Listen, this is this is the guy. You know, you got to trust us." And in those days, they would, if you earned your stripes with yeah. them, they would say, "Okay, let's give mm -hmm. it a shot," because they always felt like you can go recast it if they like the pilot yeah. and they don't like him. So they gave us that one. They gave us everybody, actually. The only one who didn't go through that was Faith. That's what we've heard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Charlie. Um, so, uh, so we went out and we said, hey, you got the part. Well, he was shocked. And uh, he had to go buy some clothes. He couldn't go back because we were starting rehearsal. Uh, mm -hmm. I do remember that they had put him in the Beverly Garland Hotel when he came out to read. And once he got the part, suddenly he was on a high floor at the Universal <laughs> Sheridan. <laughs> with room service um so yeah that was that was him that's how we got him we love him i think there's something so great about uh 
hearing it from Grant's perspective as well, mm-hmm. because he just he still sounds flummoxed <laughs> by it. how he got that part. <laughs> yeah, still sounds completely baffled, but grateful. Yeah, yeah, it changed a lot of lives. Yeah. For sure. Well, and of course, you you also famously had a conversation when when Candace left the room. Yeah, um, that was um, a bit of a <laughs> a bit of an arm twist. Um, mm-hmm. Kimla Masters was the president of CBS, and he had a huge crush on Candace. He also mm. knew that this was a show that could break out for mm-hmm. a network that had not had a hit in seven years. And there were only, and they were the number three network, and there were only three networks. So they used to be the Tiffany network, and they, they were in a really very long drought. Um, so they put a lot of pressure on the casting of the show. And uh, uh, when she came out, we you know rehearsed her, and then we went to the network, and we were made to wait outside his office for 45 minutes. Ugh. I don't know what that was about. But mm. as the time was ticking by, I could see her becoming more and more quietly upset, um, getting a dry mouth, uh, wondering what that was all about. Um, and by the time she went in, uh, she had kind of lost her mojo. And uh, Kim, you know, demonstrated his uh, electric closing drapes. I don't know why he thought that would impress her, but she was already pissed at him. <laughs> and uh, she she did really a very uh, inadequate audition <laughs> after the buildup we gave her. And uh, and she knew it, and Barnett knew it, and 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 uh, and so they, you know, when they say thank you very much for coming in, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the death knell. So they file out, and I just turned around and went back in, mm-hmm. and I sat down with Kim and CBS's casting director, and I had a list of potential Murphys, and I said. Show me one person on this list that, if they're cast in this part, they would break out any bigger than Candace Bergen if she nails it. And I said, and I've seen it. I've seen her do it. I know she can do mm-hmm. it. And this means as much to me or more than to you guys. Amazingly, they said, all right, you know. And uh, uh, and then Kim said, can I tell her she got the part? <laughs> Uh, okay, go ahead. Uh, and out he went, and he extended his hand. And the look on her face, I often describe as the last scene in The Candidate where Robert Redford sits on the bed in the motel yes. room, and now he's the president. Uh-huh. And that's really what her reaction was. And then we went out to a restaurant afterwards and had a drink, and uh, I could see she was still reeling. Um, and... Uh, and then Kim, uh, at the upfronts, told this story, and he forgot to, he forgot to, he left out a really important part. He, he said, and she was terrible. <laughs> and then you're waiting for him to close the circle, like, and now she's done it, and she's brilliant, and he didn't. Mm. And, oh. and then, you know, Candace's publicist was the legendary Pat Kingsley. Mm-hmm. And you don't mess with Pat. Mm-hmm. And Pat was mm-hmm. like, we're pulling you out of this show. They don't appreciate you. Um, 
Mike Nichols weighed in, her friend. You know, who are these people? Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, you know, she she was very upset by that and felt kind of humiliated by that. And uh, and and then he apparently wrote her this uh, remarkable letter of apology that she shared with no one until she wrote her most recent book, where she printed the letter. Oh, right? yeah, that's it was right. it was pretty that. pretty amazing. Um, it still cost him his job. But um, oh, that yeah, I didn't know. yeah. I mean, well, that and the fact that you know yeah. he hadn't produced another hit, so mm-hmm. he was out, mm-hmm. and um, and off uh, off she went to be Murphy Brown, and many many Emmys later, you know, it was she certainly was she was that person. Yeah. She was dying her yeah. whole life to be that character. Yeah, she is. She's she is Murphy. It's it's been amazing to watch. I mean, everyone step back into these roles uh, in the eleventh season. Um, it's, it's just a, we were talking and we, in our little revival episode when the trailer first dropped was seeing, cause we've seen Candace work since Murphy Brown and we've seen her, uh, play all these other roles, but there's something about that moment when she sits down in that chair in that first teaser for the 11th season mm-hmm. and just the quirk in her face that is so Murphy that, you know, exactly the voice that is going mm-hmm. to come out that is so just intrinsically her. And it, it makes sense why you fought for it, because it is, it's magic. Yeah, um, and for her, it's muscle memory, too. You know, mm-hmm. both of us became that character over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing it, and she was being it, and, mm-hmm. and we kind of merged into this one person. Uh, <laughs> she would often look up from a table read at a line of dialogue or a joke and just give me a look like, okay, I know you were responsible for that. (laughs) Um, You know, she just had an instinct um, how to play this character that, um, you know, we, I mean, the rest is history. Uh, She's (laughs) remarkable. I mean, do you also feel, though, that the two of you also, it's not that she was really great playing the character, but she really understood your writing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's a, uh, all of us really, you know, the original writers, we, we had a, we had a rhythm and a, and a tone uh, that we all adopted and, um, and she got it, you know, she, all of them did, you mm-hmm. know, you, mm-hmm. um, we didn't have much of a, you know, a new series has to go through quite a few episodes before you hit it. And uh, I think it happened to us around episode six or seven where we really felt like we were clicking. Mm-hmm. Um, that cast was so remarkable. And, um, mm-hmm. and it, and it kind of happened again. You know, everybody just stepped into their characters, but with different layers on them because they're older. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that Corky now is, she has a real feminist bent to her. You know, I love her. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's just, uh, uh, it culminates in our 13th episode, you know, where she wants to yeah. interview Mike Pence. And I won't say any more than that, but um, <laughs> I love that about her. I love how Grant, um, as an older Miles, still has his insecurities, but he's learned mm-hmm. how to deal with them. He's not yeah. that hysterical mm-hmm. guy. We've talked you about know? that. Yeah, we love and that. And there's a, there's a wisdom and a life experience um about the character now that i'm i'm we're all really loving um Mm -hmm. and uh yeah everybody's got a a different uh a new layer on them that makes it really fun to do 
Was that something that you all collectively um, really talked about when you were breaking the story, or did it just sort of come naturally? Um, it, it, it partly in breaking stories, because we would say, now, wait a minute, how would Miles deal with that now? Or how would uh, Corky react to that now? Um, um, but it wasn't until we got them all together and heard them saying the words mm, that, yeah. you know, we started to really work, work that in a little bit more, all of that change. Uh, and especially for Murphy, now she's raised a fine young man, um, and she's a mom, and she's so attached to him. It gave her a, um, a, a nice, a softer, gentler aspect to her character. She's still so flinty mm -hmm. and fearless, but, you know, uh, she loves him so much, and she's very protective of him, and, and uh, I love their relationship. That's yeah. been... I think the most gratifying part of bringing this back is to, to watch that. It's really wonderful. Yeah. We really love it. And, and I, yeah. the audience does as well from what we can yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jake is just, you know, he he can do it all. He's, uh, yeah. he's there was no question who was going to get this part. Um, we were just so grateful that he came in for it because he's really a movie star on the rise, you know. And and it, one of the hardest kinds of actors to to find is um, somebody in their early 30s who looks like that, who's really funny, mm -hmm. not just a you know a reasonable facsimile of funny, but really funny and has great dramatic chops. He's got all those things. And when you think of the guys who can do that um you think about you know bradley cooper and ryan reynolds and george clooney and it's almost to the end of the list you know so so we're very um grateful to have him and he's just a swell guy too we love having him around yeah and it's he's believable as uh murphy and jake's son yeah yes yeah yeah, as a as a Lowenstein lover, um, <laughs> I I will say I see a lot of I see a lot of Jake in his in his performance and in the way that he's being written right now. Yeah. Is that um, something that you have talked about? Is bringing that his paternal side in? Um, yes, we have talked about it. Didn't seem right for a first season. It's big, you know, it's yeah. really big, mm -hmm. and I think it would have dominated. Uh, everything. I think we needed to really establish our people, you know, reestablish mm -hmm. them. But if there's a second season, I think there's a place we want to go with that. Oh, great. And mm -hmm. have you all discussed, because we've made our assumptions that he hasn't mm -hmm. met Jake yet, but has that anything that you have or not want to talk about? Um, yeah, we'll put that on hold yeah. because that's still a big discussion in the writer's room. Yeah. So I'm not quite Ooh, juicy. I love that. sure how it's going to end up. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to work out there. Something that matters a lot to me, as you may have heard in the uh, in our podcast episodes, as well as on my mug today. <laughs> um, I'm a big mug. fan. I of made her that Jim. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> yeah. great. It says Jim on one side and Jesse. On oh, the other. that's great. Because I, I love my dial. Uh, but I'd love to hear about what it was like. You know, you talk about the fact that we have Candace, the movie star who came in in the original series. And what it, I mean, it was such a big deal for a movie star to come and do television at the time. Um, and then you had people like Grant and Charlie who were theater performers at that point. Um, what it was like choosing your gym and Charles Kimbrough himself. What was the, the choice like when, when you were looking for your gym? What were you looking for and what brought 
Charlie to the forefront? Oh, um, well, I mean, you, you've seen him. So, you mm-hmm. know, there, there were, a, again, a whole um, a procession of Jims who were just the stiff guy. The sort of, what was the name of the guy on Mary Tyler Moore? Um, Ted Knight oh, character, yeah. mm-hmm. kind of caricature of an anchorman. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking for the authenticity and the comedy. And um, Charlie did little things like that little nose wrinkle he does and the mm-hmm. changing of the posture and mm-hmm. uh, the voice. You know, he could do the voice and then switch over from anchorman voice to actual person voice. And, and uh, he showed us a lot of that in the audition. He was up against a wonderful actor, also a theater actor named John Cunningham. And mm-hmm. so, um, oh, but there was okay. just something about Charlie. Uh, mm-hmm. We we all felt we didn't even have to we didn't have to fight for Charlie. So it was that was his part. Did you audition uh, a lot of theater actors for the show? Yeah, I went to New York uh, repeatedly mm-hmm. and and saw a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, boy, then this iteration of the show, because we're in New York, we're getting great people. Yeah. Really mm-hmm. great people um, doing smaller roles, but memorable roles who are wonderful theater actors. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we came to New York looking for our main cast, you know, and we auditioned a lot of, a lot of people on both coasts and out of Chicago, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she likes Love that. Chicago. <laughs> Love Chicago. Um, I also saw in in your history that you you taught English. Yeah, I uh, right? I taught English for one year, uh, grades uh, um, freshman through senior, high school, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it was in an inner city school in Buffalo. Uh, a couple of my students had police records. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was a rough and tumble, you know, school. Um, but a good school and it, it didn't have a theater department didn't have they had never put on a class play hmm. so hmm. I you know I decided I was gonna you know try to get that together so we got the band and the um, and the students and we did decided to do what was the least expensive version of little Abner we could do because they could make their own clothes at home and and uh, the art department the kids in that that were were taking art classes did our backdrop and and um and the band was awful but they got really good toward the end and and uh we, we had a couple of set pieces that had to be built I had a kid in my class named Monte Carlo that was his name and he showed up with all these tools um, one day to, you know, build, build sets. I said, where'd you get those tools? And he said, five finger discount. I said, you got to take those tools right back to the tool store. <laughs> so this is what I was dealing with. Um, but it was a huge success, raised money for, a you know, uh, refurbishing of the gym. And some of those kids uh, went on to um, careers in the theater. One in particular who who started a theater in Boston. So um, yeah, but that was my year, and I I just knew mm-hmm. that was not my mentor Warren Enters was telling me you got to go to New York, you got to go to New York. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, when the when the year was over, it was a great experience, but it wasn't what my my path was. So yeah, hmm. 
Do you find that that year of teaching um, helps you as a showrunner? Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, Danny Jacobson, great writer and uh, co-creator, Mad About You, was on my staff on My Sister Sam, and he uh, gave me a gift at RAP. It was a crystal apple. He said, apple for the teacher, because that was kind of my attitude in the room. And on my first series, uh, Foley Square, uh, Saul Turtletaub and Bernie Ornstein were my producers, and I learned everything from them. But they made me do warm-up once, because they said, well, one of these days on one of your shows, the warm-up person isn't going to show up, and you're going to have to do it. Oh, really? And they made me sit in the editing room with them. They made, they made me do every yeah. aspect of show running so I could learn. And so I was so terrible. I got up there and I, st I was a teacher. So instead of doing jokes and patter, <laughs> oh, no. I was explaining how a show gets produced oh, and God. how the cameras get loaded and people are falling asleep. And <laughs> so, um, so that wasn't an asset, but, uh, I'm very grateful to those guys. Those guys really, everybody should have somebody like them in their corner when they first start out. Yeah. And, and rarely do now. You know, people just get thrown into it. Yeah. And it's why a lot of stuff fails. There's mm -hmm. no school no, to there go isn't. to. Yeah. So before, we want to obviously talk about the revival, but before we do, um, are there any favorite moments from the classic series or favorite episodes that, that you remember fondly? Well, of course, the pilot has memories for all of us. You know, that was an extraordinary experience. And mm -hmm. um, I loved uh, our Christmas show, Jingle Hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I loved that. The Brother Silverberg is a, is a favorite. Certainly the birth of yeah. Avery. Um, mm is a favorite. I loved our satire of the Nita Hill hearings. That's a great one, yeah. Um, I love that. Talk about relevant, still relevant. Um, yeah, and it's been on a tenant yeah. TV recently, and a lot of people mm -hmm. on Twitter have been commenting yeah. just how relevant uh -huh, it is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, those, those are some favorites, but, you know, I like them all. I, I will say, as uh, somebody who's currently in in graduate school as a as a performer and, a, and an artistic creator, uh, I during the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, had some friends over to watch that episode. Oh, great. Uh, that Nia Hill episode. Uh-huh. Um, to, because we were all kind of talking about how do you tackle these issues mm -hmm. and so on. And they've heard me talk about the podcast mm -hmm. a lot. And a lot of them weren't, weren't aware that, that they knew someone who could help them watch the show. And so they came over and it was, uh, it was a boon to a lot of people, um, in my circle, knowing that there are ways to tackle these issues. Um, with comedy and with relevance and i just want you to know that episode still hits a lot of hearts oh that's good i'm glad to hear that mm -hmm. that was a peter tolan episode mm -hmm. oh yeah i do have a question that came out of our conversation with norm oh yes uh he told us that um there is an amusing story regarding chet's your horse's passing Oh, God. And then we should ask you. Yeah, and he was our first interview, and, and he said, you have to ask her about this. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I mean, Chet, Chet, I got Chet when he was five, and he, he passed away at 31, so he was really mm. more than a pet. Mm. You know, he was a family mm. member. Mm -hmm. And um, his passing was really tough on me. 
And so, you know, a large animal, what do they do with them? So they go to a place and that prepares these animals for uh, their last trip. Uh, And they uh, they called me and they said, "Um, we're cremating him. Would you like his ashes? And I said, Mm -hmm. no, I don't think so, but I would like a piece of his tail and a piece of his mane just to keep. Mm, yeah. mm. And um, so they said, uh, fine, we'll do that for you. Uh, so uh, about a week passes and uh, a Federal Express truck comes to my house in California and the guy gets out and he says, I have a package for you. And I thought it was a piece of furniture that I had ordered. And the guy gets a dolly and this giant box comes out and he sa- said, where do you want it? And I still thought it was the chair. Yeah. And I looked uh, on the label, and it and the return address was the crematorium. And I went, oh, my God, it's Chet. Chet is now in my driveway. <laughs> and because he left it there. I was going to just unpack it oh. and, and, and take the chair in. And now it's sitting in the middle of my driveway. It weighs 90 pounds. It can't be moved without help, and it was about to rain. So I now got garbage bags, and I wrapped it so that it wouldn't get wet. And I called the crematorium, and I said, I I have Chet here in my driveway, and I didn't ask for him. And they were appalled, and it turned out, Four horses had passed that day, and one woman did want her horse's ashes. They got them confused, Mm. so she's waiting for hers, and I've... I don't know if he's in there, yeah. her horses. I don't know what is happening. <laughs> no. So now I, um, they po- apologized profusely, and they said, we'll send somebody right away to pick him up. The next morning, Federal Express guy comes back. It's a different guy. And he said, I'm here to pick up a package. I said, it's right there. And he gets a dolly, and, a, and, and he said, wow, this is heavy. What's in this? And I said, if I tell you, will you still promise to take it? (laughs) And he said, yeah. And I said, it's my dead horse's ashes. And he sort of stopped. And then he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. It was very sweet. Oh, that's very nice. Shout out to FedEx. Yeah. Anyway, he put put the box in in the truck. And I, I called them back, and I said, oh, okay, the FedEx has come, and they've taken it, and so look out for it. But maybe you want to just give this box to the lady that yeah. is waiting for him. How would she know? Yeah. You know, so yeah. anyway, uh, days later, a beautiful tail and mane oh, arrived, well, all braided it? with, with – they did do that, you know, so, so I have Very that sweet. at home. But um, – and I see that FedEx guy in my neighborhood every now and then, and he always waves at me. <laughs> oh. So that was my Chet finally comes home story. <laughs> oh, what a good FedEx man. Well, I have an animal-related story that I've always wanted to ask you about, and it it's to the point of which I hope this is something I'm remembering correctly because I can't find it, But so I apologize if this is not true. But is it true that you accidentally took your dog's tranquilizer yeah. once on the way to a meeting? Yeah, <laughs> it is true. Amazing. Because um, it sounds like a sitcom story. And we made uh-huh. it into one. We made oh, it into did? an episode. Yeah, I um, 
had a very um, high-strung little German Shepherd mix, and there were <laughs> there were trees along my driveway, huge pine trees that had to be removed because of fire danger. And so for days, there were guys out there with loud saws, and she was just freaking mm. out. And I called the vet, and I said, is there anything I can do? She said, yeah, we, well, we have this medication, and you can give it to her. And I had this ritual every morning where I would, uh, I have a whole um, basket of vitamins, and I sort of ritually go through and take each one. But her, her pills were right there. And so I was preparing to go meet with Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen to take over their series, Inc. And um, I had met with them already, and now it was a meeting with Jeff Katzenberg and, and Les Moonves. Oh, and that I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, it was a big deal, and it was, <laughs> it was at Jeff Katzenberg's house. And, um, and I had to drive from my house to Malibu, and I um, got... I was just thinking about what I was going to say in this meeting, and I realized as I was putting the cap back on that I had taken one of those pills. And so uh, right away I called the vet and I said, what is going to happen to me? And I said, well, it's um, probably not very much, but don't drive and, you know, you'll just feel really relaxed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it essentially was like a Valium, which I had never taken before in my life, so... I get into the car and I'm driving and I can feel it kicking in and I don't take any kinds of drugs and so I had kind of a big reaction. Um, I couldn't feel my lips. <laughs> and so I get there and I had this big presentation and I got through it, and they kept asking me if I wanted water, and I wasn't sure why, but I didn't eat anything. And then Ted walked me to my car, and he said, are you all right? You were so animated the last time we met you. And I said, I have to tell you something. I accidentally took one of my dog's tranquilizers. So, um, so I got myself home, and um, anyway, they hired me, and I took over that show, but we thought it was so funny that we made an episode out of it. Oh, I must have missed um, that one. <laughs> and, and Ted still says it's the funniest thing he's ever done in his life, where he takes the pill. <laughs> where Mary has a dog, and it doesn't like Ted, and, and she makes little meatballs, and she puts the tranquilizers in the meatballs, and he goes to her apartment. <laughs> Um, Because they have a parent-teacher meeting, and he sees meatballs there, and he pops maybe like a dozen of them. And, you know, he's such an incredibly great physical comedian Mm -hmm. that um, it's, it's one of my favorite episodes of anything we ever did. There's a, a video of uh, the cast of The Good Place teaching him recently how to uh, floss. That's the dance? How to do the floss yeah, dance. It's yeah, it's pretty hilarious. He's really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he is hysterical. I love that man. <laughs> So in the classic series, we talk a lot about the, the real-life influences of, of storylines and different characters. And one of the, the real-life influences and later uh, people who join you was Linda Ellerby. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I grew up a huge fan of Linda Ellerby from the, her Nick News work. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you uh, what it was like, uh, any influence she brought in and even her when she joins you later. Um, well, you know, Linda wrote a book. Um, about her experiences as a young journalist and being female among so many men. And um, mm-hmm. and it was just great. It was great research. 
and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and and the fact that she had a drinking problem too. You know, so mm-hmm. there was a lot in common there, and um, you know, and I was just a big fan of hers anyway. So. Uh, and then we had her on the show, which was great. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I said, you're going to play yourself. And she didn't know how to play herself. You know, she's not an actor. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was uh, a little challenging for her. But, uh, yeah, she had a lot of good stories. And it was it was great to get her on. It was great to get her on. There's a, there's a really great, great quote from uh, the Chicago Tribune in 97, uh, when in the later seasons, when uh, Murphy gets breast cancer, mm-hmm. uh, Linda is now, you know, a an amazing philanthropist for breast cancer yeah. awareness and research and funding. And uh, she had already spoken years before about Murphy Brown and the parallels. And then she has this great quote in the Chicago Tribune saying, big mouth, booze, and now breast cancer. This woman has got to stop stealing my act. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that. That's pretty great. Oh, we'll send it over to you. Okay. It's a lovely little, great. little chat. Great. Mm-hmm. Next on the Murphy Brown podcast, is there anything that they can do to let decision makers know that they want another season. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, there's a hashtag that got started now. It's called uh, hashtag Renew Murphy Brown. And I think it would be great if people did that, you know, right. hashtag. Mm-hmm. Because um, the network does pay a lot of attention to what goes on online. Thank you so much for joining us for part one. Part two is going to drop on Thursday, which is the finale of season 11 of Murphy Brown. So you can listen to the second half of Diane's interview and then watch the finale. I mean, that's a pretty good day. And while you're doing that, please make sure that you're following us on social media. And we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Murphy Brown Pod. You can also find us on the website at murphybrownpod.com. You, you can email us with your thoughts and, uh, and conversation pieces at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. And if you like this and want more interviews and more episodes like this, you can drop us a review on iTunes. Just be sure to create a profile name under your profile and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you for another episode of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 